Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. That'll get us started tonight. Romans chapter 8. Earlier this week, I was looking through my Bibles. I have a number of Bibles that I've used over the last several years. Of course, they're all King James Bibles. But, um, you know, you wear them out. And I've wore out a bunch of them where the backs are kind of, uh, you know, they'd fall apart if I was to get them up here, and I don't want to do that. And uh, most of those Bibles are full of notes from hearing messages by different ones over the years. And I was looking through one, and I was reminded that back on April, oh, let's see, it would have been April something. I wrote it down, and then I can't, uh, I can't find where I wrote it down at. Um, anyway, it was back in April of 1987. I had Dr. Lee Robertson uh, preach for me. I was pastoring at Temple Baptist Church in Manchester, Tennessee. And he brought a message on six words that kept him going, that ought to keep us going. And it just kind of stirred me up reading through that, remembering him preaching at that time and and uh, what he went through with that, and they're good words to help us. Now, some of you won't know anything at all about Dr. Robertson, but he had a tremendous impact on Madison Baptist Church. Brother Tony went to Tennessee Temple University. I went to Tennessee Temple University. Brother Larry Nelson, who's the head of our missions, he went to Tennessee Temple University. We were influenced by what went on at Tennessee Temple and the whole goal of the school and its training as literally thousands of people went out from there filling mission voids around the world and on top of that pastoring in different churches. By the way, Brother Glenn Weeks also is a graduate of Tennessee Temple University. Uh, So you understand that Dr. Robertson's ministry had a tremendous impact on Madison Baptist Church through the people that we have here today. Now, Dr. Robertson was born in 1909. That was a long time ago. He passed away in 2007 at the age of 97. Now, this man pastored for a lot of years. As a matter of fact, he retired from being the chief pastor to being pastor emeritus at Highland Park Baptist Church in about 1984 or 1985, somewhere around there. And uh, still went on and preached all over, the, all over the country, preaching in at least three churches a week, at least 156 churches a year. And up into his 90s, he still drove to almost all of those meetings. If they were anywhere close at all, he would drive to those meetings. He was tireless. I had him preach for me a few times. As a matter of fact, every time he would preach, he always kept some three-by-five cards and he would be sitting in the congregation during the song service, and he'd pull out one of those three-by-five cards, and he'd write a bunch of stuff down. And then before he would leave, he'd say, Here, Brother Allison, here are some things that I think will help you and help the ministry here where you're at. And he did that. I've talked to a lot of pastors, uh, people that he preached for, where he would take notes like that just to kind of encourage them on the, in their service for the Lord and to keep their church moving for God. Well, his favorite verse was Romans 8, 28. And that's what we're going to read to start it tonight. Uh, when I went to Tennessee Temple back in 1974, 
It was advertised at that time as the world's largest church. It had a membership of 56,000 people. Now, honestly, they had an attendance of 10,000 every Sunday during that time. And you wonder what happened to the other 46,000 people. Where were they? I'm sure even the FBI couldn't find some of them. But, you know, sometimes we get to looking at that disparity. It was quite common among Baptist churches back then to tell you their membership, people who had joined, who for some reason or another were not off the rolls, and usually the membership was quite higher than what the attendance was. Now, at Madison Baptist Church, when people ask me how big is Madison Baptist Church, I give them a number of people attending. I figure that's how big the church is. All right, now that's just me. Uh, I don't go in for the higher numbers for that, but that's all right. 10,000 every Sunday, that was a pretty, that was Sunday school. That was a pretty big ministry. A lot was going on. Thousands of people got saved there. As a matter of fact, for over 30 years, he didn't have a service where he didn't baptize at least one person. And sometimes he would baptize several people. The first service in a few decades, while I was there, it was, I still remember who the preacher was, Brother Paul Van Gorder. He was preaching a Bible conference. He was preaching on the, um, the parables of Matthew chapter 13. And that night, nobody came forward and got saved. Dr. Robertson didn't have anybody to baptize. I felt like volunteering just so we could keep the streak alive. You know what I mean? Uh, but he did, he did a tremendous, tremendous work. As a matter of fact, just eight months before he went on to glory at the age of 97, he wrote something just as an encouragement for pastors and evangelists to keep going. He wrote this, I believe the Bible. I believe in the promises of God regarding our future life. I believe to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. I believe the future will hold some of the most glorious blessings that one could ever conceive. We will be present with the Lord. The Apostle Paul said, this is far better. The future is bright. I know the Lord may come at any moment. He has promised, I will come again. Continue in his great work. Give attention to the winning of souls and exhort yourself to a close walk with God. I remember when I got a picture of Dr. Robertson, and he signed it, and he always signed his name, Lee Robertson, and then underneath that would put Romans 8.28. Now, I'm sure you probably know the verse by heart, and we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to those who are the called, to them who are called according to his purpose. Now, when I went to Tennessee Temple in 1974... Uh, that was the biggest place I'd ever been. I still remember that first service that I was in, and they sang, Behold, He Comes. Man, that was powerful. You know, it starts out with the basses, Behold, He Comes. And then the tenors, Behold, He Comes. Yes, <laughs> best I can do for a tenor. And then, <laughs> and then the altos sang it, and then the sopranos sang it. And man, that was glory. You felt like the rapture was really going to take place well, I mean, hey, it was a crowd in that auditorium of 5,000 people in an auditorium that only seated about 3,500 people. I mean, it was, it was packed. And that was before they built the new, uh, the, uh, the big building, the last building that they were in there. Um, but after I'd been there a year and a half, I made an appointment to go see him. And I remember sitting out in the office waiting for the secretary to let me know I could go in and and she said, uh, Mr. Allison, you can go in. 
and go through the office here and into his door. And so I went in and he said, well, what can I do for you today? And I told him, I said, I've been here a year and a half and I thought it was time I meet my pastor. And so he kind of chuckled about that and uh, had me sit down, asked me where I was from, what I was studying, let's pray. I was out the door. I mean, it was that fast. I don't think I was in his office for two minutes. I went in two more times, two more times while I was at Tennessee Temple. And the total amount of time of all three times added together that I was in his office, I don't believe was more than 10 minutes all put together. Well, he was a busy man. I mean, when you got 10,000 people in attendance and you got people that want to see you, that keeps you pretty busy. Plus, he was preaching all over the country as well and just doing a great job. And I still remember the first time I had him come preach for me, I took him out to eat at Shoney's and we sat and talked for an hour. That was like a dream to be able to just sit and talk with Dr. Lee Robertson. What a guy. He preached for me in Manchester on April the 30th, 1987. And as I looked at the notes to that message, the six words that kept Dr. Robertson going, and that lasted him all the way up to 97 years of age, those are pretty good words for us to remember. And they ought to have an impact on our lives as well. Not just as life verse. I mean, you talk about being positive. We've got a good reason to be positive. For we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So I just thought tonight I would share with you those six words that he shared with us. The first one he said is faith. Jesus saith unto them, have faith in God. Mark chapter 11 and verse 22. Have faith in God. Now this is key. God makes much of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 he says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. Then in verse 6, he says this, and we need to get a hold of this. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. He always said, make much of faith. Faith is a big deal. Have faith in God and in his power. It seems like today... We spend more time explaining away the power of God than we do showing faith in the power of God. I mean, it pleases God when we demonstrate faith in him. Jesus didn't say have faith in faith. He said have faith in God. It's important that we put our faith in the right place. We ought to have faith in his word. It is his word. Jesus said in John 17, 17, thy word is is truth. Now, if I have faith in his word, then whatever God says about anything, that's enough for me. It ought to be enough for all of us. God is always right. In every, have faith in his word. You can trust his word. You want to know how to operate your home? Get in the Bible, find out what it says. Now, the world doesn't like what it says about the home. Doesn't like what it says about the husband-wife relationship. Doesn't like what it says about how the children are supposed to be brought up. The world doesn't like that. But I'll tell you what, it works. It's a whole lot better than what we're raising up today. We, I, I mean, where do you think all this woke stuff came from? I was reading a little article on yesterday, I believe it was, about uh, uh, the emoji 
We never even knew what an emoji was until just a year or two ago. But there is an emoji like this. And it says, old people use it a lot, but Generation Z never does. And the reason they don't is because they consider it rude and a threat. It offends them. Therefore, this offends them. Hey, what do you think of that? <laughs> that offends them. How weak can you mean? Now, see, they don't care who they offend on social media. They don't care about who they scream because they didn't recycle, who they scream at, and the things that they say and the threats that they make. But you do this to them in an email, and they go bonkers. They are so offended. They can't handle life. We've got a generation of Americans that get offended at everything. And if you offend them, you're at fault. You need to pay. There's something wrong with you if you offend them. But you can have faith in his word. And the word of God does offend people, by the way. You can trust God's word. It's always right. You ought to have faith in our God that he does answer prayer. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. You know, when you think about the Calvinists for just a moment, why pray? God's already ordained, foreordained everything. God's already chosen. Everything's going to happen. It's going to happen. It has to happen. You can't stop it from happening. Well, therefore, why pray? There's no need to pray because it's going to happen whether you pray or not if God ordained it to happen. It's not the way it works. God tells us to pray. He says you have not because you ask not. According to what Jesus said, if you don't ask, you don't get it. And you don't get it because you didn't ask, not because he foreordained that you wouldn't get it. You understand? Your, your prayer does make a difference. He told us to pray. You can have faith in God. Have faith in his word. And that leads us to the next word that he gave in that message, and that was the word conviction. Now, similar to faith in this matter, conviction, for instance, about the word of God, that it's true. As you know, my last verse is Psalm 119, 128. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. I believe God's right about anything he says anything about. It is not primarily a science book, but everything that it says about science, it's right. You understand? I mean, whatever God says about anything, he is right. Bible says God has exalted his word above his name. And I thought about that long and hard for a while. And I came to this realization, you know, a man's name is only as good as his word. Why would God exalt his word above his name? Because if his word's no good, his name would be no good. And God's word is always good. God's word is true. The psalmist said, thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Therefore, we need to be a people of conviction. Yes, God's word is true. That settles it. What about when science says differently? Well, you know, one of the things we found is that scientists don't always speak real science. I mean, if we didn't learn that in the pandemic, then, then we are really dumber than what I thought. 
As a matter of fact, when politics takes over, hey, go back uh, with the guy who uh, found that gravity, he found out what gravity, was that Newton? And you realize how he was persecuted for finding that out? When they came out with the world was round, man, the persecution those people put up with, when they started teaching the truth about the world being round, you say, well, preacher, I believe in the flat earth. Well, believe in all you want. Don't go near the edge. I've been around the world, and I've not been near the edge, Brother Tony. That's an amazing thing. I mean, if you think it's a coin floating in the air, okay, that's fine. Seems silly to me, but you can believe what you want to believe. But right here, I've got a book that makes it pretty plain to me. And he hangeth the earth on nothing. Man, he said that long before man understood that. Back when men were teaching that the earth was on the back of an elephant. But it's amazing how many people who simply following... This book, by the way, scripture talked about paths in the sea before they ever knew that there were regular currents going in the sea. That was already in the book. That life is in the blood. Here are these doctors. The doctors were bleeding people. If they had some kind of sickness, they said the problem is they've got bad blood, so we need to drain that blood out. They killed George Washington. They bled him several times. They weakened him, so the influenza he had killed him. When what he needed was the blood. They were draining the very life out of him. And he had a Bible right there on a stand, had the answer in it. God's word is just true. Have you got that conviction that God's word is true? And God said what he said. He meant what he said. And he meant it the way he said it. That ought to be enough for us. You have a conviction. You take a look at Daniel in the scripture. Bible says he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. You see, he believed you weren't supposed to eat meat offered to idols way back in Babylon. And uh, he was right, by the way. The Holy Ghost tells us we're not supposed to eat meat offered in sacrifice to idols in Acts chapter 15. Conviction. Well, I believe convictions are a matter of choice. No. What God says is right. You can choose if you want to believe wrong, but God's word is simply always right. So I've got convictions on things. There are things that are not right to do. There are ways that are not right to dress. There are things that are not right to say. Conviction. This is where separation comes in. Now, it's one thing if you don't have a Bible that makes some things very clear, but I've got a Bible that makes a whole lot of things just very, very clear. I mean, do you realize that men and women aren't to dress alike? That's just, well, that's, that's your opinion. No, it's what he says. It's what he says. That ought to be enough. It's enough for me, and I'm, I'm just going to go by what God says. Have some convictions. Once you start backpedaling on the word of God, you've got no place to stop. I've told some young preacher boys who fell in for some of this, this false grace nonsense that was out there. I said, listen to me, a year from now, you won't be where you're at right now. Because once you pull up anchor, once you cut the anchor, you're just going to drift wherever the current takes you. You cannot stay where you're at if you're going to cut off your anchor. You need the anchor of the word of God. It's why we don't compromise. 
That's why we stay with the truth of God's word. By the way, convictions about the church. Now, the word that's translated church is ecclesia. It means a called out assembly. Well, what do assemblies do? They assemble. Now, I've never been a big fan. Matter of fact, not, not a fan at all. So I'd never do it. Live stream. Then the pandemic hit and we live stream. And I'm glad that we can be a blessing to those who are homebound and cannot get out. I'm glad we can be a blessing on that. But I'm going to tell you, there are people that could be here who aren't. You say, how do you know that? Because they go to Walmart. They can eat at restaurants. But the only place you get COVID that you really got to be scared about is the church. You can't get in any of those places. If the assembly can assemble, it's to assemble. I believe that quite firmly. The Bible says, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as ye see the day approaching. He says in Hebrews chapter 3, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I don't follow a lot of this uh, universal church nonsense that's out there. The emphasis in the scripture is on the local church. When Paul went around to different places, won people to Christ, he didn't win them to the mystical universal church. He got them into a local Bible-believing church. The book of the Revelation is written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Matter of fact, good number of Paul's epistles were written to the churches, like the church of the living God at Thessalonica, or the church of God at Corinth, over and over again. And then he's got two books to, uh, and to the church at Thessalonica, and then he's got uh, two to uh, two different pastors. He's got two, first and second Timothy, to Pastor Timothy, to tell him how to behave himself in the house of God, and then one book to Pastor Titus to give instruction about pastoring a local church. I've just got convictions about that. So when I go on, um, when we go on vacation, we go to church. We go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night. We go to Sunday school. We go to midweek service. We go. Bible says more was required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And I believe in being faithful. Now, the reality is there are a lot of churches that their Wednesday night service is deader than last year's Christmas tree. I mean, you go in there, and we've been to some. I remember we were going down to, uh, we're going to have vacation. We were going to Florida. We were leaving after the Sunday morning service. I called a pastor friend of mine who was pastoring down at uh, UCLA, the upper corner of lower Alabama. And uh, I called him up. And I said, uh, listen, my wife and I are going to be leaving after our morning service. I think we can get to your church at about church time, but I need to find out what time you start. And so he told me, I said, good, we can make it. And the pastor said to me, he said, well, Brother Allison, uh, I'm sorry, I can't have you preach. I already got a missionary coming. I said, well, I wasn't calling to preach. I just want to be in church on Sunday night. And uh, yours is the one that I, I picked out and I figured you'd be a blessing. And so... We went on. We got there on Sunday night, went in about 10 minutes before the service started, and he had a missionary to Mexico speaking that night. So they sang about four songs, and then the missionary got up. He sang four songs, two in English, two in Spanish. Then he showed his slides. They were doing slides back then, you understand. He showed his slides concerning Mexico, 
And I, we could not figure out where he was at in Mexico. He never told us in the slides. It was someplace where there was jungle, because I remember a whole lot of trees and things like that, but he never told us. 15 minutes on the slides, and when that was all done, it's about, we've been there 45 minutes, I'm ready for the preaching, the missionary sits down. So then the pastor gets up, and I figure, well, he's going to bring the message in tonight, and the pastor said, he gave an invitation. This was a friend of mine, and I thought, what's he giving an invitation for? They haven't even read one verse of Scripture. They've not preached on any verse of Scripture. Nothing has been given to give an invitation. Just a bunch of pictures. That was it. I was embarrassed. Matter of fact, I was going to be preaching over at Ambassador Baptist College uh, on a Monday and Tuesday. This is several years ago now. And I asked Tom and Jewel Young if there was a good church on the other side of Atlanta. And so I figured I could get there by church time. And it was a church that was starting at 7 o'clock their time, which would be six hours, plenty of time to get over there, about 40 minutes on the other side of Atlanta. And uh, I got there about five minutes before church started, and I went inside the church uh, to the auditorium. They had maybe about 80 people, 100 people that filled up about a third of the auditorium, and that was fine. And they had a good song service. They had a song service, lasted a half an hour, and that was good. Then the pastor got up to preach. He read one verse out of the book of Proverbs. We didn't turn to any other verse. He didn't quote any other verse. No other verse was mentioned. He didn't even really talk about that verse. And then gave an invitation. We were out of there by 10 minutes till. I thought, this is horrible. These poor people came to church to get something. They didn't get anything. And today, unfortunately, a lot of our churches, they're canceling their Wednesday night service and, uh, and canceling their Sunday night service. What a shame, man. If they don't have anything to give, let them get a pastor who's got something to say. Amen. Get up and preach. Convictions. Need to stand for something. We're letting the world shout us down while they push a bunch of garbage on our children from same-sex marriages to all the transgendered some people have been smoking LSD, if you can smoke LSD. I don't know. They're under something. It's nuts. They're just nuts. Conviction, faith, and then vision. Proverbs 29, 18. The Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. Where there is no vision. Now, I heard one guy say one time, well, that word vision is the same word that's translated in another place, seer where there is no seer. Now, you, you remember that Samuel was a seer, a preacher, where there's no preacher, the people perish. But it says vision. I'm going to take what it says. There is no vision. We need to write vision about some things. Number one, we need to write vision about Jesus. Why did he come? The Bible says this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, when Jesus came, he did a lot of miracles, but he didn't come to do miracles. He came to save sinners. Now, he taught a lot of great things, but he didn't come to teach a lot of great things. He came to save sinners. Why he came? In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. It's why he came. He said in John 3, 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He came to save sinners. We need a right view on Jesus Christ. What he did. He came for sinners. And he sends us to go out for sinners. We need a right vision of Jesus. As you know, I have a message that I've preached a number of times, several different churches around the country, on what would Jesus really do. And I can't preach that message without getting some people mad. Because they think Jesus came in in his long hair, which he'd probably wear in a ponytail today, and just said a bunch of really nice things and never raised his voice. I'm thinking, man, can't you read? I mean, Jesus did a lot of things. He rebuked a lot of people. He turned people back to the book. Jesus, well, Jesus was a rebel. He wasn't a rebel. He was 100% completely conformed to the word of God and the will of God. 100%. He didn't back off on the word of God and the will of God. We need a right vision of Jesus, who he really is. Not only that, we need a right vision of hell. Hell is a place where people burn forever, no escape, only torment. They're never getting out. Now, what I use to help motivate me about the need for the lost, and hopefully this helps to keep us focused here, on we are about winning the lost to Christ. Our ministries are about winning the lost to Christ. That's what we're supposed to be about. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. We're to be winning the lost to Christ. As a church, that's to be our main goal. Why? Because people who die without Jesus burn in hell forever. My wife, when I was a student at Tennessee Temple, she worked as a secretary down at Central Presbyterian, which was about three or four blocks away from Highland Park. They liked to hire Tennessee Temple student wives for their secretary because that way, you know, secretaries hear everything and they didn't want things that were said in the office being spread through the congregation. And not only that, if they fired the secretary, it wouldn't harm their church. So they felt like that about a lot of things. Well, I went down there one day uh, to talk to my wife, and there was a Presbyterian missionary couple that came in. And we, we got to talking. And I don't know how the subject came up about people who've never heard. And the missionary wife said this. She says, well, you know, we really believe that if they never hear, that God will let them go to heaven because of their ignorance. Well, if that's not about the dumbest thing I've ever heard, then why would he tell us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? I mean, if they could go to heaven without hearing of Jesus and taking him as their Savior, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. But if they could go to heaven because they're ignorant, then let's not tell anybody. Everybody would be ignorant. Everybody would get to go to heaven. But that's not what God said. It's not what Jesus said. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And what I think of, my grandpa, my grandpa Allison died lost. My grand, he died in 1959. I think it was June 29th of 1959. My grandfather went to hell. My grandfather's in hell today. Right now as I preach, he's screaming for a drop of water to cool his tongue. And it's not ever coming. I can't do a thing for my grandpa. I can just do something for grandpas that are around here. But I can't do anything for him. 
Now, I, I was lost, of course, back in 1959. I was only nine years old at the time. But after I got saved as an adult, I tried to witness to my dad. My dad never made a decision for Christ. And uh, my dad died in the middle of, a ni- of the night uh, after a night of drunkenness, had a heart attack. The Bible says, he that being often reproved, uh, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed that without remedy. My dad's in hell burning as well. You say, preacher, I, that, that doesn't make me feel good. Doesn't make me feel good either. But if the Bible's true, and I have the conviction that it is true, then that's where they're at. Nobody goes to heaven without the Savior. See, this is real. It's why we're having a revival. It's why we're having a big day. It's why we had a neighborhood picnic. Why we do the different things that we do. We don't do what we do just so some people can come in, fill up their stomachs with hot dogs, or have a nice service where everybody's laughing and joking, and they leave and it's a good time. This is serious. People are dying and going to hell all about us. And we are responsible. On this coming Friday, of course, will be the funeral service for Brother Kent Broadway. One of his favorite verses comes from the book of Ezekiel, where he basically tells us, and I can't quote it off the top of my head right this moment, but if we don't warn those, then their blood will be on our hands. If we don't warn the lost, we're going to answer to God for why we didn't do it. We need a right vision about hell. We need a right vision about the judgment seat of Christ. I mean, we're not going to be skipping and smacking our lips, chewing our gum while we're going up to the judgment seat of Christ. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's not going to be an easy time. This is serious. You look at all that Jesus went through. So we could have eternal life. We need a right vision about what makes heaven happy. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, the lost chapter of the Bible, not because we can't find it. It's a lost chapter of the Bible because it's about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then it's about a lost son. But I want you to notice in verse 7 of chapter 15. He says, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Do you realize somebody gets saved on visitation this week, they will make God happier than all the rest of us did that week? Do you understand that? It makes heaven happy. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10, same chapter. He says, likewise I say unto you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God, Over one sinner that repenteth. One sinner. That's a big deal. I know we're trying to get crowds, but you get one sinner that repents and heaven gets happy. I'll never forget when my mother passed away and I had had the privilege of leading my mom to Christ before she died. She ended up dying of cancer at the age of 59. And uh, she died on a uh, Sunday morning about 4.30 in the morning. My brother called me to tell me that mom had died. And I was scheduled to preach at the Coffee County Jail at 8.30 and then teach Sunday school at Temple Baptist Church in Manchester uh, and then preach and then preach again on that Sunday night. And so I went down to the Coffee County Jail, had to get saved at the Coffee County Jail that Sunday morning. I was driving back to Temple Baptist Church to get ready for teaching Sunday school. And while I was driving through, I was just thinking about my mom, 
thinking about what it must have been like for her because she's just gotten into heaven. Now, although I got to lead my mom to Christ, she never grew a lot. Uh, she was just, she was 500 and some miles away, and I tried to get her into a decent church there, but I wasn't there to encourage her to and, and get her into it and get her involved in it. But so she didn't grow much. She didn't understand why we did the things that we did, why we were living the way we were living and all that. I know she didn't understand it. She put up with us, but, but she didn't understand it. And I'm driving back through Manchester, stopped at the light just outside of City Hall in the police department, and it hit me. For two hours, about that time, maybe four hours, my mom's been walking the streets of gold. She's been enjoying heaven. And suddenly, when those two guys got saved at the Coffee County Jail, heaven started rejoicing. And I could just imagine in my mind's eye, my mom asking the nearest person, what's going on? Why is all the shouting? And somebody answering her and saying, what haven't you heard? Your boy just had two saved out at the Coffee County Jail there in Tennessee. And when, I, I, and when that hit me, the reality that, hey, now she knows why I've been doing what I've been doing all these years and why my life was dedicated to him. And there in the car, I'm just outside the police station, I had a fit. I'm, whoo, praise God, hallelujah. Hey, this is real stuff, man. It's reality. We need a right vision about what makes heaven happy. We need a right vision about ourselves. We're living to get all the joy and fun out of this life that we can get. But I got news for you. Life's not about fun. It's about serving God. Paul described himself this way in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. And the word translated servant is bond slave. Paul would write and say, What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. In Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service, vision. I said there were six. You're counting, I know. The fourth one, endurance. Endurance. Scripture says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, you take these football players out there. They're playing football, and it's always been this way. They never used to make the money that they make now. Now they are just paid gobs and gobs of money to do what they do. It used to be people played football because they just liked playing football. They liked hitting. They liked the contact. They liked all of that. But it's always been difficult. You know, the thing about playing football is you get hit. And if you got the ball, you, you get hit more often than the guy who doesn't have the ball. But even guys without the ball get hit. And they like it. It's tough. Now, we're not very tough. We're kind of pansies. I mean, if anybody hurts our feelings, we go crying. Well, I'm going to go someplace else. It hurts. Uh, they don't do that in football games. Though. Football games, they're, they, they're excited about getting out there and getting hit again. God forbid that we should suffer any for the Lord. And yet in church history... 
It is full of examples of people who were tortured and butchered for the Lord Jesus Christ, who stood true till death. Scripture says, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Endurance. Serve and stick to it. And stick to it. That's one thing about Dr. Robertson. Until he could not get out anymore. He couldn't drive anymore. I mean, when he was up to uh, 97 years of age, finally, he couldn't get out to preach. That was a lot of years. I still remember preaching over in South Carolina with uh, Dr. Robertson in the meeting as well. And there were a few other preachers there. But I was preaching in that meeting. And Dr. Robertson, he and his wife, he was in his upper 80s. They had driven all the way from Chattanooga, he and his wife Caroline, uh, over to South Carolina to preach. And he did that all the time. All the time. Endurance. Then the fifth word is submission. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Jesus is praying in the garden. Just hours away is the cross. Where he's going to be slain as the sacrifice for our sin. In Luke chapter 22, in verse 42, notice his prayer in the garden. Father, if thou thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Hey, for every one of you young people, can you pray to the Father about your future? Not my will, but thine be done. Are you willing to pray and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Lord, where would you have me go to college? To prepare for what you would have me do with my life. God's not going to call everybody to be a missionary. God's not going to call every boy to be a preacher. But I do believe you ought to be surrendered to whatever his will is. Jesus told the disciples at Sychar, he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Our desire ought to be to do the will of God, to be surrendered to it. What would he have you do? How about today? Have you even thought, did you, did you think to pray before the day got going? Lord, I want to do your will today. Would you put me in the situations you want me in so I can stand for you? Lord, I want to do your will today. Did you think about doing his will today? Have you thought about doing his will tomorrow? Now, you don't know all the different circumstances that may come up tomorrow. But have you ever thought about praying, Lord, as I get into this day, I want to do what Jesus would do if he was here. I want to do what he'd have me to do. I want to do his will. That's what I want to do. Submission. Submission. Because it's not about us. It's about him. We were created, according to Roman, or Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, we were created for his pleasure. 
And if we end up having to do without things to do His will, then man, let's do without them. I mean, the Bible tells us, yes, we're to be separate from sin, but we're also to be separate from the weights that weigh us down. Now, the reality is sometimes there are things that get in the way. It's amazing how athletes will give up certain things in order to try to be good at whatever sport it is that they're trying to do. I remember when they had wrestling in high school, and uh, we, had a, we had a guy in our school by the name of Chappie Cleveland. Uh, I believe he passed away a few years ago. But uh, Now, Chappie wasn't a real big fella, but he wanted to wrestle in the lower class, which I think might have been 98 pounds. And that guy had to starve himself to make his weight class. And I thought, man, I don't want to wrestle that bad. But he did. And he was good. He won a lot of wrestling matches. But he had to do without a lot of things. Man, we want everything that we can possibly get instead of doing his will. Let me give you one more. And this was a big one. I don't know how many times I heard Dr. Robertson say this. It was the word compassion. And he might quote from verses like Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Or Jude 23, and some having compassion, making a difference. Many times he would preach on on tears. As a matter of fact, the third time that I went to see Dr. Robertson, He had just preached a message a week or so before, and he talked about tears. And he asked the question, when was the last time you wept over a soul? That you were willing to weep as you prayed. And he really went through it. Well, I went in to see him, and I said, Doc, I said, I don't cry. I don't cry. I was taught by my dad, men don't cry. And you've heard me say this before. I mean, you know, we'd sit down and watch some movie on TV and a dog would die and my mom would be crying and my sister would be crying and my dad and I'd be sitting there telling jokes to keep from crying because men don't cry. And that was drilled into me. So if I seem to be kind of an emotionless guy, I'm I'm not emotionless, but it's very difficult for me to cry. I know know guys that can sing and cry, and I know preachers that can preach and cry. But when I cry, I have to stop doing whatever else I'm doing and just get it out, and then I can go on and do what I was doing. I'm not a crier. And and he said to me, he said, Brother Allison, he says, you got to understand, whether actual tears come or not is not the point. He He said, listen, I can tell a story about a horse dying, and have a whole bunch of people in the congregation just crying their eyes out. He says, but yet they won't ever go out and tell anybody about Jesus. And we talked about going out and knocking on doors and winning people to Christ back then. Of course, I was pastoring Pinewood Baptist Church in North Chattanooga, a chapel of Highland Park. We went out all the time and knocked on doors, got to see a number of people saved. It was wonderful. And he said, you know, I'd rather have somebody not shed a tear but go out to reach them than somebody that cries all the time but won't go out and tell anybody. He said, that's the real compassion 
when you're willing to go. Bible says of Jesus in Matthew 9, 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Burdened for the lost. These words, they kept him going. They meant a lot to him. Faith, conviction, vision, endurance, submission, compassion. And they worked pretty good. From 14 years of age to 96 years of age, faithfully going all the time. What will it take to get us going and sticking to it, being what we should be for his glory? Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, challenge our hearts tonight, I pray. Lord, please, you want some people to stick to it. You've had them in the past. You should have us now. Stir us up tonight, I pray, in Jesus' name.